Good morning, everyone. I'm Jack Bell, Engaging the World Pastor. What a privilege to be here with you this morning, even though it's virtual uh, in this service. Um, it's my privilege today to introduce our preacher for the morning. I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like time seems to be picking up speed. And uh, I think back to a year ago this month when I met Horace and Frida Gudas at the Greenville-Spartanburg Airport as they arrived in early January to begin their two-year time with us. Horace is studying at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, working on a Master of Divinity degree, preparing to be a pastor in the Greek Evangelical Church, hopefully a church planter if the Lord wills. His wife, Frida, is also studying at RTS, and she is studying Christian counseling, which will be such a blessing to the church there in Greece. It just seems like it's, it's hardly believable that it's been a whole year that they've been with us. And it's been so fun for, for Martha and me and many others in our congregation to get to know them, to love them. They're, they're just a bright spot, and they, they represent uh, right here in our presence our partnership, our global focus partnership with Athens, Greece, which is their, their home city. They represent Glyphada, Greek Evangelical Church, and they hope to go back to, to that same denomination about a year from now. So they're halfway through their time. We're so happy to welcome Horace to our pulpit here at Mitchell Road today. Uh, we believe he and Frida are a special gift to us as a congregation. So uh, listen carefully as he opens God's word to us today from the book of Job. Welcome, Horace. Thank you, Jack. Hello, everyone. It is definitely a joy for me to be preaching today. My name is Harris Gudas, as Jack mentioned already, and my wife Frida and I are coming from Greece. Our plan is to stay here for two years in total, get trained, get equipped, gather experiences, and go back to our country and serve our church there. Our denomination, the Greek Evangelical Church, and the Protestant Church in general, is just, is just a small minority of the total population in Greece. But we are excited because God, here in the United States, is the same God in Greece and in other parts of the world where his word is being preached. Coming here about a year ago, it gave me the opportunity to experience that the Church of God is not limited in my country and in my own local church, but it is something way bigger. Coming in the first Sunday to worship here in Mitchell Road was so special to me. Just sitting in the pews and watching brothers and sisters in Christ, all of them worshiping Jesus Christ and worshiping the same God that we were worshiping back in Greece. It was so moving. I don't know if you have ever felt this, to go to another church and feel this connection with people that you meet for the first time. There is a bond between believers, and this bond comes from the love of Jesus Christ, which unites us all together under his body. We definitely feel blessed to be here, and we are thankful to God for, for what he is doing in Mitchell Road. One of the things that I am really excited about this year is the journey through Scripture that we are doing together as a congregation. Actually, I am so excited that I have promoted to people back in Greece 
and several of them have started reading the plan together with us. So it's not a local thing, but it's a universal thing now. As Santi mentioned last week, reading the Bible is not about checking a box or adding another thing to our already busy lives. The Bible is a living book. No matter how many times you may have read it, it is always fresh. It has always something new to provide. Reading the Bible is about, to, about getting to know God better and getting to know what your Heavenly Father has to say to you. I thought it was a brilliant idea to read through the Scripture all together as a congregation and the sermons to follow what we read through the week. If you have been following along from the beginning, you will know that this week we are having a pause from the book of Genesis as we jump to the book of Job, and after that, from the next week, we'll jump back to Genesis 12, where we stopped. The reason for doing that is because we read the Bible in a chronological order, as you already know. And the book of Job, most likely, is the first book of the Bible ever written. So as a church, we will have only one sermon on the book of Job, so you are stuck with me for this one. It is an amazing book, presenting in the most amazing way the sovereignty of God. What I'm planning on doing today is give a brief overview of the book, highlighting some key parts, so in case you are not reading the Bible with us in this reading plan, you can get a good idea of what the book is about. And if you are following the reading plan, you will get a good reminder and a good overview of what you read this past week. After that, I will focus on Job 40, verses 1 through 14, which is going to be our main passage for today's sermon and where we will spend most of our time. As we go through the overview, I would like to, 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 I would like to put yourself in the position of Job. How would you feel? How would you react? And how would you think about God if all of that happened to you? So the book begins introducing the main character, which of course is Job. Job was a very wealthy man living in an area called Uz, and the text tells us that he was a blameless and upright man who feared the Lord. Very early in the book of Job, he is losing everything that he owns, his wealth, his family, except for his wife, and his health. In the first two chapters, we see this discussion between God and Satan, where basically Satan accuses Job of fearing the Lord only because he has blessed him so much. And if God actually removed his blessings, then Job would actually curse God. Of course, Job is not aware of this discussion. God accepts the challenge and allows Satan to hit Job's belongings and family, but not himself. Just a quick pause here. It is really important to focus on two key things here. The first one is that even from the very beginning, from the very first book of the Bible, there is spiritual warfare. The devil is seeking to harm God's children from the very beginning. We should not lose this reality. We have an enemy that is always on guard and looking for ways to destroy us. First Peter 5.8 says, Be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil's primary target is not Job. 
The devil's primary target is not you or me or any other person. The devil's primary target is God. He hates God. And because he hates God, he hates God's people. He wants to distort everything we believe about who God is. And he will try try everything possible to make us lose our faith in believing about God's power, God's love, and God's wisdom. As you may know, the devil is the father of lies, and he will do anything possible, and he will try to send lies into your thoughts to make you believe the lies that God does not love you enough, so he doesn't care about you, or that God does not know enough, so you should not trust him, or that God does not have the power to change the condition you are living in right now, so you should take the condition in your own hands and don't rely on God. If you believe those lies, if you're any of those lies, Satan will have succeeded in his purpose. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 6:11 tells to us, put on the whole armor of God that we may be, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The second key thing, and this one should, should bring us confidence and fill us with confidence, is how limited Satan is. If you notice, in order to do anything, he needs a special permission from God. Satan cannot do anything to you unless God has allowed him to do it. Whatever is happening in your life, either good or bad, God has the complete control over it. Nothing surprises God, and nothing slips out of his attention. When when Job finds out what happened to his children... And his servants, he rips his clothes, he saves his head in sorrow, but, and this is the key here, he does not curse God. Actually, immediately after he understands that he basically lost everything, what he says is, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, this is the relationship between God and his children. I personally struggle with this one a lot. It is very easy to to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, when everything is going well in my life. But when hard times come, I have got to admit that I am not as quick to say something like, my Lord, my Father, knows that I hurt right now, and he hurts with me as I am suffering. Blessed be the name of the Lord for whatever he's allowing allowing in my life. So as the story continues... Satan sees that he failed and that Job didn't actually curse God, but he doesn't quit. He actually appears in front of the Lord again, and this time he asks to hurt Job himself. God allows it again, but this time put restrictions again, and he says, you can harm him, but do not take his life. And in this moment, where we are in the book right now, the only person close to Job that Satan has not harmed is Job's wife, and he did it it purposefully. Because when he sees, when his wife sees Job in this terrible condition, she turns to him and says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. So think about that for a moment. Imagine that you have 10 children. This is how many children Job had. You are very rich, And in one day, you learn that all your ten ten kids are dead, 
and all your belongings are gone. You're basically now very poor and no family. And on top of that, soon after that, your body gets full of sores and you're in pain. And on top of that, you have your spouse coming and looking at you and basically saying, what are you still doing alive? This is exactly what Job is going through. But even then, he still does not curse God. His reply was, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? But his problems are not done. Next, we have the arrival of Job's friends that they come to provide comfort. But if you are familiar with the book, you will know that maybe the only comfort that they provided was the seven days that they remained silent. Because soon after that, for 35, 35 chapters, excuse me, we see these cycles of debates happening between the friends, where practically they were trying to help Job by using a false theology, and Job, on the other hand, trying to defend himself by trying to answer to their claims. What they basically did was accusing Job of having committed a sin or multiple sins that he hasn't repented of. And this is why he's suffering that much. So how many times have we seen this false theology happening even today? Have you ever heard something like, you are having this sickness and the Lord does not heal you because you do not have enough faith? Or something like, you are going through that suffering because of a sin you have made and you have not confessed. We should be really careful of what we are saying to others and not be quick in trying to give explanations and reason why something, happen, why something happens in someone else's life. So his friends came to comfort him, but eventually they were just adding to his misery. There is a Greek phrase that speaks about bad friends that I recently learned that there is, it is the same in English. It goes like that. With friends like that, who needs enemies? And I think this fits perfectly, the friends of Job here. So after all these debates, it is finally God's turn to talk now, which brings us to our today's passage. It has been a long introduction, but we've made it. So I would like to invite you to open your Bible in Job chapter 40, as we will read verses 1 through 14. Job chapter 40, verses 1 through 14. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with the voice like this? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abash him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand 
can save you. This is the word of the Lord. Three brief points that I want us to focus on today. Point number one, God desires to be in a relationship with you. The Lord is saying in verse two, Salah fault finder, this is Job, contend with the Almighty. At first sight, this seems like a rebuke from God to Job, because Job in the previous chapters was trying to defend himself for having done nothing wrong. And in this process, he fell into the trap of thinking that God does not do a good job in running the world. God in chapters 38 and 39, speaking to Job, he asks several questions like, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? All intended to show that Job, to show to Job that God knows what he's doing, both in creation and in Job's specific circumstances. If you read this passage recently, did you wonder why God asked all of these questions? The main reason is because God wants to bring Job back to a position of worship. He wants to remind Job that the God that he thought was not doing a very good job is still a God of justice and goodness. Job might be thinking, God, you have allowed my wealth to be confiscated, my family to be taken away, my health to be ruined. You really must be doing something wrong here. And God, in this simple way, in this gentle way, he's saying to Job, my child, I have made no mistake. I know exactly what I am doing. My counsel is perfect. I have got nothing wrong. You need to trust me. God is not defending himself here. He doesn't need to defend himself. He does it because he wants Job to come back to the view that he had back in chapters 1 and 2, where he was blessing the name of the Lord, no matter the circumstances around him. So God of Christianity is the only God who would put himself in a position like that. In any other religion, God is up here, distant from the human, and he only wants to receive from the person down here. God of the Bible desires to be in a relationship with you. He wants to be in a relationship with his people, and he's willing to come after us to bring us back to him. God of the Bible is the only God who is willing to sacrifice his son on the cross to open the way for reconciliation and salvation for sinful human beings like me and you. He wants to know your concerns. God cares for you. He wants to know your doubts. He wants to know your arguments and all the things you don't understand. As I was preparing for this sermon, Frida, my wife, told me, Andy, when he's preaching, he's using the best stories. So you should say, say some stories, definitely. So here is one. A couple of months ago, both Frida and I gone through a seminar, actually a readiness evaluation uh, seminar. It's called Ministry Readiness Seminar. And what basically happens there is that you go and there is a team of evaluators that they have spent years in ministry and that what they are trying to do is evaluate your level of readiness to enter into a ministry position or your readiness level to enter in a, any kind of ministry life, uh, something like that. I will not tell you my results. If you're curious, you can ask Jack maybe some other time. Frida did a great job. 
But one thing that I remember from this seminar that was so clear to me is, was when one of the interviewers, one of the evaluators asked me, how would you describe prayer to a person who is not a believer and that he doesn't have any kind of church experience? And my reply was, prayer is communicating with God. What I basically do when I pray is talking to my heavenly father. And it is the greatest thing ever because God is the only person that I can be 100% vulnerable. He's the only person that I can come to who is always available and he, <clears throat> excuse me, and he will always be there for me, desiring to hear me. Wouldn't you want to have a person like that in your life who is always delights to spend time with you? That was my answer. The evaluator didn't say anything. He just continued writing on his paper, and he continued with the next questions. But they didn't kick me out, so I guess it wasn't terrible. But this is the reality. God delights in spending time with his people. Each one of us is unique, and this is why we all have a different story. Your life story is unique, and there is no other person on the whole planet with the exact same story. For this reason, God is approaching each one of us in a different way. God used several different ways, different things in my life to turn me back to him. What I want to say is that your testimony has power. Many people I know are afraid to share their testimonies, but the truth is, it's not about what you did, but what God did, what miracle God did in your life to transform you. A small application for this first point. If you're not a believer, maybe in the story of Job you can identify yourself. Maybe you are going through suffering, or maybe you are in a dark place right now and you cannot find a way out, or you cannot explain why. If this is you, then I want you to turn yourself to God. I want to invite you. Speak to God, go to your room, be alone, take your time. Start talking to him and honestly express all your thoughts and all your doubts about him. When you are done, simply ask him about what he has to say to you. Ask him to present himself to you and see what will happen. Because God loves to answer prayers like that. If you are a believer, I want to remind you that God wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to spend time with you, and he cares about your thoughts, your concerns, and your doubts. He knows what you're going through, and he promises to provide comfort even in your suffering. Nobody says that we will not face difficulties. They will come, that's for sure. But we have the promise that the Almighty God will be with us and that he is always available. Point number two, you do not know everything, so humble yourself. The reaction of Job to God's talk is, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job here, he acknowledges that he has said a lot. And many of the things he said were out of ignorance. God is asking all of these great questions in the previous chapters that Job cannot reply, he cannot give an answer. 
And then he continues and asks Job, are you going to continue talking or are you done? And Job now is humbling himself and recognizes that now it is the time to keep silent and listen. In our walk with the Lord, so many times we say too many things to the Lord and never take the time to, take the time to humble ourselves and listen to what he has to say. It may be hard to admit it, but when was the last time that in your prayer you said, God, I have said a lot, and most of the things I have said are not even accurate. Now it is your time to speak. Now I am ready to listen to you. This is what Job is doing here. Take notice in this question. Who humbles himself? Of course, the answer is Job. But who is Job? Remember in the beginning, the description of God himself about Job was, my servant, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. This person is humbling himself. In other words, the child of God is humbling himself. The saint is humbling himself. The upright man is humbling himself in front of the Lord Almighty. I know for sure that this is not the description that God would have, would have about me. I'm not even close to blameless. But if Job, who the Lord said was an upright man, needs to be humble, and if Christ himself humbles himself, as we see in Philippians 2, how much more should we do the same? In our walk with Jesus, we should daily humble ourselves in front of the Lord and repent. The more we get to know God, the more we see the need to grow in our humility, the more we understand the gap that there is between us as sinful humans and God's holiness, the more we need to get back to him and ask for his great upon us, which is enough to bridge this gap. If you find yourself in a place where you do not hear from God, or maybe you do not even remember when was the last time that you remember God speaking to you, then maybe it is because you are not done talking yet. Maybe in your prayers, what you actually do is do all the talking, say amen, and then continue with your life. Maybe when you open your Bible to read, you just do it to check your box and then put it aside, and you come back the next day and the next day and the next day without allowing the word of God to reach your soul and to speak to your heart. James, in his letter, describes this perfectly. He says it is like looking yourself in the mirror, and then you go away, and instantly you forget what it was like. If all that sounds familiar to you, then maybe now it is the time for you to humble yourself in front of the Lord, and like Job say, I said a lot. I said all that I had to say. Now, God, I am ready to listen. There are so many times in my life where I fall into the same trap again and again of doing all the talking and never letting God speak back. But this is not how a relationship works, is it? Some months ago, here is another story, or maybe better call it confession. I was in a place in my life, in one of these uh, cases, you know, where you feel that the heaven is closed and I had this big burden in my heart. I was praying, 
and feeling, feeling like I was talking on my own. I was not getting anything back, like talking to a wall. Have you ever felt that? There are several, several reasons why someone may go through a phase like that, and we don't always know why. But I was very aware of why this was happening to me that time. It is ironic, actually, because I am in seminary, and what I do most of my day is read about God, read about the Bible, read about theology, and write papers. I know it doesn't sound exciting, but this is something that, something that I actually love doing. And what happened was that even if I was reading so much about God, I was not spending time with God. You see, the devil will use everything that he has available, available to make us go away from God. And in my case, he even used seminary to turn my focus away. So some days later, I was in this situation and I had already signed up for the spiritual retreat happening some months ago here in the church. And for three hours, it was just me, my Bible, and God. I went out in this beautiful place behind the church with the wooden cross. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you should check it out. It's beautiful. And what I did was I started praying. I repented for letting my studies go above my relationship with the Lord. And for the rest of the remaining time, it was just me and God spending time together. Just me and him in his presence. And then after a while, this sweet feeling that the heaven is open again and the burden on my heart was lifted. God already knew, but he was waiting for me to go back to him. And when I did, his arms were wide open. God is the all-knowing and the almighty God. We are not any of these. So point number two, we do not know everything, so let's be humble in front of the God and listen. Point number three, even in your suffering, trust your heavenly Father. You may have noticed that Job did indeed silence himself and said that he would speak no more. That's true. But he didn't repent for thinking that he knows better than God. He did not repent for what he said so far. The suffering was real. He honestly felt that he was treated wrongly. So his case, his case is still open. When he says, I will speak no more, what he basically says is that, I told you everything I wanted to say. I will not speak any further but neither I will take anything back. So the main question still remains, isn't it? Why do I, Job, who I do not think I deserve it, suffer as I do? Yes, God is the Lord of the universe, and yes, he is in control of everything and sustains all the created order, but I am still suffering. This is why God continues his talking, even when after Job said that he would remain silent. The restoration was not yet accomplished. Again, the way God chooses to question Job is to help him overcome his resistance and gently lead him back to repentance and the reconciliation of the relationship. And God is doing the same thing with us so often, isn't it? He loves Job, and in the same way, he loves us today. Job, in his attempt to prove that he's innocent, he charged God with with acting unjustly. 
In other words, Job thought that he knows better and not God. It is important here to notice that God does not accuse Job of any sin. But if the relationship is to be restored, then Job needs to acknowledge his self-righteousness, acknowledge his pride, and repent of all of his complaints about God. So from verse 6 to verse 14, and all the way until the end of chapter 41, God speaks to Job, and this time he makes it clear that he's not only the God of the universe, but also the God of justice. He makes Job, and us today as we read it, to realize that we cannot compare to God. We're not going to read it now. If you are following the plan, you should have already read it by yesterday. Or if, you're not, if you are following the plan, and you are a bit behind, or you're not following it, that's okay. But I would encourage you to go back and read chapters 40 through 42 to read what I'm talking about. But what I want us to focus our attention as we close here is to what happens when God finishes his talk. Because this is perhaps the most important part of the book, and this is the final reaction of God, of Job to God's talk. This is the final reaction of Job to God's talk, excuse me, and the restoration of the relationship. When Job hears all that God has to say, his response is, chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And verses 5 and 6, I, have, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now Job is back where he was in chapter 1 and 2. Now he's able to see again clearly who his heavenly father is and return to worship. Notice here, Job's misery is still present. His belongings are still gone. His health is still bad. Everything is still there. But the difference, his soul is renewed now. Now in the midst of his suffering, he can be joyful because he now trusts in the Lord again. And shortly after that, you know the end, God restored everything and gave Job twice as much as he had in the beginning. So what do all of that have to say to us today? In our own lives and our walk with the Lord, we have not reached the final restoration yet. We are still living in what Reformed theology calls the already and not yet. As believers, we are already living in the kingdom of God but not yet enjoying the glory and final restoration that will come with Christ's second coming. We, like Job before God restored him, we are in the midst of difficulties and sorrows. But even in situations like that, we know that we have a Savior who has already won and he's preparing a house for us right now. Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross. He has won death and we expect him to come again. So when difficulties, difficulties come, as a believer, you have two options. You can either live in misery and complain to God about all the bad things that are happening to you, or you can instead rejoice, even in your suffering, even in all the sorrows, because you have a heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you, and one day he will restore everything. There is a great quote from George Miller. George Miller lost his wife of rheumatic fever back in 1870. They were married for 39 years, and the Lord gave him the strength 
to preach her memorial service. And in his sermon, he said the following words. I miss her in numberless ways and shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow. I am satisfied with the will of my heavenly Father. I seek my perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. I kiss continually the hand, the hand that has thus afflicted me. The book of Job at its core it's not about Job. It's not even about suffering. It is about God and true worship. If you focus on the suffering, you will be disappointed because you will not find the answers that you might be looking for. But if you focus on God, you will see clearly his character, his sovereignty, his justice, his kindness, and his love. And when you see the character of God, you can trust in him. And this will automatically lead you to worship him. We are called to follow Job's example and as disciples of Jesus Christ, pick up our cross and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come in front of you. Thank you so much for this amazing book of Job. Thank you so much because you are a God who desires to be in a relationship with us. Thank you so 